It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor, International in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Vermont. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 23rd of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. The Qatar World Cup, the most controversial since the last one, kicked off last week. What does it tell us about the state of global politics? And how has FIFA tried to defend the event? Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. And I discussed my interview with Jens Stoltenberg the Secretary General of NATO, about how well Western support for Ukraine is holding up and how the alliance is responding to the missile which landed in Poland last week. And we take a listener question on Russia's Wagner Group. I am a representative of a private military company. Perhaps you heard, it's called PMC Wagner. The first prisoners who fought with me were 40 people from St. Petersburg, serving strict regime with current crime. Thank you for joining us. Emily is off this week, but don't let that put you off. We've got Megan and Casey here to, to make up for, for Emily, who will be back next week. So if you miss her dearly, then you don't have too long to wait. The Qatar World Cup is underway. It's been a tournament marred in controversy from the country's poor record on LGBT rights to a last minute decision to ban sales of beer inside stadiums. And perhaps most egregiously of all, thousands of migrant workers are believed to have died during construction of the stadiums. Some politicians implore the public to keep politics out of sport. But of course, the tournament was already intensely political. Katie, you've written the leader for the magazine this week about the World Cup. Can you talk about what the World Cup tells us about power in the world today? So I think there's two aspects to this. The first is that this World Cup is happening in Qatar at all, given, as you've outlined, the 
incredibly serious allegations of the abuse of the, the migrant workers who have built these new vast stadiums of the country's abuse of human rights, the fact that it is illegal uh, to be gay in Qatar, you can go to prison, and the persistent allegations of, of corruption around FIFA itself, and in particular the decision to award this World Cup to Qatar. That it is happening there nevertheless, I think, is a sobering corrective to some of how we like to view the world sitting in, in European capitals or here in the United States as believing that liberal democratic values perhaps hold more sway in the wider world than they really do, and that an organization like FIFA would champion those values, or at least hold to its professed principles in the face of its other interests and the lure of the, the vast amounts of money that are to be made from a tournament like this. So, you know, I think we can look at the location itself as somewhat of a, of a symbol of perhaps the West being weaker in its global influence than we might like to hope. But then we can look at, I think, the individual actions since the start of the World Cup, which is less than a week old, and how some of the, the teams involved have, have responded to this situation and how they have and have not shown real moral courage in the face of some of these issues. So the, one of the things I, I wrote about was the England team and what had been the plan of the captain, Harry Kane, to wear the rainbow armband through all of the matches at this tournament in support of inclusion, diversity, and LGBTQ rights. Around an hour and a half before the kickoff, we find out that that he and he was one of seven European team captains who was planning to do this, were in fact not going to wear the armband. Their football associations said that while they had been prepared to pay fines, if those were levied for, for wearing their armbands, they couldn't put the players at risk of perhaps being carded, being given a, a yellow card, and then at the risk of, of being sent off. So it, it really showed you how far they were prepared to go to defend that value, which in the event was not very far at all. So the armbands were not worn. Instead, they wore, wore FIFA-issued, extraordinarily banal, no discrimination armbands. Set against that, and the, the, the crumpling in, in the face of the, of the first sign of challenge by the England Football Association and others was the Iranian team. And I know, Megan, you've written about this this week, who stood silently while the national anthem was played in support of protesters back home at real risk to both themselves, their careers and their families. So I think we saw you know, a real example of courage in those actions, which, which I think really we can only call these actions you know, brave, courageous, principled, if they are taking place with the with the risk of, of real cost. So there is there is contrast between those actions on display in Qatar. But Megan, I'd, I'd be interested to know what you think about this and and what you learned from from writing about that this week. Yeah, well, it's it's like you say, if you only protest once you have permission, it's not a protest at all. I mean, it's just and the thing I really thought found really striking in your leader was you made the point. If all of the seven football teams had banded together and said, well, we're going to wear these armbands or 
will walk otherwise. Cardisol. Yeah. Cardisol. They could have really, really challenged because sometimes I think maybe, maybe it's not that the West is so much weaker than we think we are, but that we're just actually pulling our punches. And some of our institutions, I think it's fair to say, are too swayed by the money that certain regimes are willing to offer. I mean, I know, Katie, you've you've talked about this in, in the context of the Olympics in Beijing and how, how that's played out, which I think is similar. There's obviously a lot of different nuances to the different countries and how, how they approach power, how they approach the spectacle of, of inviting the world to their country. The, the thing that really struck me about the Iran team, it wasn't quite clear ahead of the game what sort of protest or if any, they would do. Obviously, there's been anti-regime protests sweeping the country since September after the death of a 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, in police custody. And she was detained because she was improperly wearing her hijab. And since then, there's been mass protests in cities and towns and villages across the country and a really, truly brutal crackdown by the regime, where now we're starting to see death sentences being issued to to protesters in, in just a really horrifying turn of events. So for the players on the pitch to be openly, publicly on the world stage defying their regime is maybe not necessarily putting themselves personally in danger if they happen to live outside of Iran, but certainly any family ties they have back home. There, there could be huge, huge stakes. So as you said, just the sheer bravery, it was quite stunning. And I think probably quite shaming for, for the England team and other European teams who there's really no stakes other than maybe to their own career. It's a really good point on the West pulling its punches and on the power that these players actually do have had they banded together. So instead of caving and saying, fine, we won't wear the armbands, if they had then vowed that, okay, now, what, now every single member of the team is going to wear an armband and we're going to appeal to all the other teams to do so too. And we're going to stand proudly as we're carded because this is what we believe in. And I think those images and that action would have been truly inspiring in a way that the individual match results might not be. And I think the other thing that that strikes me watching the World Cup unfold now in Qatar is just the need to dispense forever with the fiction that doing this, holding major sports tournaments like this in autocratic regimes, is somehow bringing a spotlight to human rights abuses in that country and therefore will affect real change. You know, we heard that argument a lot with the Winter Olympics in Beijing earlier this year. And I, I looked in the article about earlier examples of the 1978 World Cup in Argentina, or you can go right back to the 1936 Berlin Olympics in Nazi Germany. These events in themselves do not bring down these regimes. If anything, they legitimize them. So we should see that soft power gain for what it is, and we shouldn't kid ourselves that that is anything other than than what happens when these decisions are made. I'd be interested, just before we move on, to get both of your views on whether this, I think this it's fair to say this Nadir for, for world football after, I mean, we, we alluded to it in the top there, but the last World Cup was, of course, in Russia. And having, I think, Russia and then Qatar is not a sort of stellar endorsement of sport being able to affect 
political change, as you said, Katie. Do you think that this run of, I think it's fair to say, bad appointments will change anything? Or is world football just so kind of corrupt and enthralled to autocratic regimes that this state of affairs will continue? Well, this allows me to talk about the response by the head of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, who gave a really quite extraordinary speech right before the the opening of the World Cup, defending the decision absolutely full-throatedly, very bizarrely arguing that he understood what it was to be bullied or to have your rights in question because he had once been teased at school for having red hair and freckles. And he took the stance that, in fact, it was just hypocritical for Europeans to to cast aspersions at, at Qatar and that because of the history of Western colonialist abuses that Europeans should apologize for the next 3,000 years before they criticize anyone else. So I think that response from the head of FIFA in this truly extraordinary rant of a speech would suggest that those lessons are, are not being learned, certainly by FIFA, um, and that there is no indication they plan to undertake any sort of a soul searching after this. They they seem to really be digging in and defending this choice. Yeah. So if you if you're one of uh, Gianni Infantino's school bullies, then this is all on you, I'm afraid. <laughs> right. You've a lot right, to answer well, you for. Can, <laughs> you can read Katie's excellent leader in this week's New Statesman. But for now, let's move on to. Brussels. Megan was in Brussels last week interviewing Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO. They spoke about Western support for Ukraine, the prospect for negotiations with Russia, and how the alliance survived the Donald Trump years. You can read the full interview in this year's NS, and I really recommend it. Now, Megan is going to tell us about what she learned about the state of the Western alliance during her conversation. Megan, What did you take away from your interview with Stoltenberg? Well, first, I just want to kind of comment just on the extraordinary timing of the interview. So it was less than 72 hours after a missile explosion in Poland, which initially was being, newswires were pushing the fact that intelligence sources were saying it was a Russian-made missile. Zelensky said in his nightly address that Tuesday night that Russian missile had hit their friend Poland and immediately... (laughs) World War III started trending on Twitter, and everyone thought that this was a Russian attack on a NATO member, which Poland is and has been since 1999, and that Article 5 was about to be invoked, and NATO and the West was going to get pulled into direct conflict with Russia. Now, pretty much as soon as that happened, we saw the the NATO diplomatic machinery were into action by the next morning, Stoltenberg had convened a meeting with NATO ambassadors in, in Brussels, liaised with the Polish government, and they were able to say, no, we we believe that this was actually a Ukrainian-fired missile. In self-defense, this is not Ukraine's fault. They were you know, protecting themselves from the largest aerial bombardment from Russia in since the war began. But you know, this was not a direct attack on NATO from Russia. So it's basically everybody chill. <laughs> but what struck me when I met with Stoltenberg, so 72 hours later, the Friday after this happened, was just the sheer gravity of the situation and which no one is actually downplaying. 
he he told me this is the most dangerous time for Europe since the end of the Second World War, which, I mean, as we saw, World War III was the immediate thing that began trending on, on Twitter. We realized that's that's what's on everyone's mind. And he was very, very adamant that while he wants to avoid an accident or an incident spiraling into some sort of escalation unnecessarily, he made it very, very clear to me that to me, and he said, we need to impress upon Moscow that NATO is 100% willing to back every single inch of our territory. And if Article 5 needs to be triggered, it will be triggered among all allies. And so I think that that was the one clear, clear message. Now, obviously, no one is deluded to think that NATO has been 100% a happy family in the last However many years, Stoltenberg has been secretary general since 2014. He took office shortly after Russia annexed Crimea. So I think, you know, he is as aware and pragmatic about the divisions within NATO as anyone. And he doesn't try to pretend that it needs to be one big happy family. He said to me, look, we're 30 democracies with 30 different histories, 30 different geographies, 30 different like political agendas, but we all realize that we are stronger together. He made the point that even the US, you know, biggest military power in the world, he's like, China is quickly advancing. China will overtake the US as the biggest economy in the world soon. Even someone huge like America needs the friends and allies that they have in NATO, and they're not going to get that anywhere else. I was just like quite impressed by his his pragmatism. You could say optimism, but he did seem quite realistic about about the challenges that that NATO faces. What sense did you get of how he views the outlook for the conflict and the and the I guess are there does he acknowledge divisions is is there unity about about the approach in the in the weeks and months ahead? His job essentially is to present the united front. So the details about the particular divisions, which, you know, we can know because we follow the news in many different countries and we see which countries have certain political factions agitating for or disputing whether Ukraine support is too high, should be higher. So we we are aware of that. His job is to present that united front. So he didn't really go into so-and-so country is really thorn in our side at the moment. But he did, he was honest that, you know, he thinks this, the war could grind on for a long time, even though I think, you know, Zelensky's not been so happy to hear the head of NATO say that in the past. And he thinks that the end of the war will happen at the negotiation table. But he says it's NATO's job to support Ukraine. So they're on the battlefield. So they're in the strongest position as possible. So they, they can get an outcome which they are happy with at the negotiation table. He says it's up to Ukraine, absolutely, to decide the terms with which the war ends. Just finally, you write that you discussed how NATO survived the Trump years under under Stoltenberg. Obviously, Trump came to power and he was not particularly committed to multilateralism, but um, NATO did emerge from that. And obviously, uh, we've seen that in the post-Trump era, it's been able to act with a decisiveness that is perhaps unmatched in, in recent history. What did he have to say about kind of the, the the potential future stresses between the West? We hear a lot about the the West divisions in the West, divisions between countries over the economy, over how to approach Russia, over how much to support Ukraine and so on. What, what did he have to say about the unity that there is within the alliance? 
I would say on what I like to call hypothetical future possibilities or scenarios, he refused to be drawn on. On the one hand, you could see he has enough to deal with in the here and now. But also, I think, yeah, he just did not want to wade in on what happens if we see Trump come to power again in the US in 2024. What happens if Erdogan in Turkey goes rogue? He just refused, refused to engage in those kind of questions, which I understand. But I think talking to other people who know him and have worked with him and people who studied NATO over the course of his, his tenure as Secretary General, he is very effective in his diplomacy by not engaging with those kind of, you know, worst case scenarios or alarmism, I guess. He, he, he very much deals with who he is working with, what he is working with, the situation he has. One example I can give you. When Trump came into office, his huge complaint was, you know, America is carrying the lion's share of the load for NATO. We have lots of these European countries that are members that do not pay 2% of the GDP towards their defense. And he was quite vocal about it, quite antagonistic about it. But he's definitely not the first US president who said this. I interviewed the Secretary General a year or two ago, and he said he had recalled hearing speeches by JFK where he made similar types of complaints. So this is like a long-standing US grievance. But what Stoltenberg would do is he would encourage European countries that they should be boosting. And he had been doing it since 2014, ever since he became secretary general. But when he would have direct conversations with Trump, he would show them figures of um, boosts from European countries, boosts in spending only from 2016 later to give Trump the impression that he was powerful and he was the one making the difference. And we really did see through the evolution of Trump's time in office, he went from saying he thought NATO was obsolete, being very antagonistic to Stoltenberg to 2019 saying, I'm a big fan personally of Stoltenberg. So he, he obviously, Stoltenberg has obviously a lot of diplomatic skill and has done a tremendous job in a really, I guess you could say, tumultuous time in, in NATO's history, which is why, you know, his term in office has been extended twice now. So he's due, he was due to step down a couple of years ago, but it's ex extended. And now he's, he's set to leave in October, 2023. He also would not be drawn on who his replacement might be, but that will be a, a very momentous occasion and something to watch. Well, you can read the full interview in this week's New Statesman. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Armando Yanucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukissi-Debra and Catherine Haddon. 
You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. For now, it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. And our question this week is, what role does the Wagner Group play in Russia's war effort? Now, I've written a piece on this, so I'll, I'll start. Um, so what is the Wagner Group? So the Wagner Group is a mercenary private military company, it's called, in, in Russia. It was apparently founded in 2014, um, and someone called Yevgeny Prigozhin recently admitted to founding it, although for a very long time he denied that he had any link to the group. And for a long time it recruited from veterans of the Russian army and more or less functioned as a kind of shadow arm of Russian foreign policy. And Wagner Group, mercenaries, so people who fight for profit, would turn up in conflicts where the Kremlin had some sort of stake. They were in Ukraine from 2014, but they were also in places like South Sudan and the Central African Republic, Libya, Syria. And often they acted as a kind of shadow arm of Russian foreign policy. They were used to prop up Kremlin allies, protect Russian business interests, but they were always kind of conveniently deniable and difficult to conclusively link to Putin. Um, so they supported, for example, Bashar al-Assad's force, forces during the Syrian civil war, and they were present in the in, in Ukraine since the beginning of the war in 2014. But Wagner has really come into the limelight since the renewed invasion of Ukraine this year. It's been involved in, in the invasion since really the beginning. Um, veterans of the group were reportedly invited to, quote, a picnic in Ukraine from a few weeks before the start of the war. And there are indications that they were they had deployment orders early enough to make them available for their kind of preparations just before the invasion. So so they were really kind of part of the forces since since the beginning. But of course we know what happened next and Russians invasion floundered because of 
well-documented issues with planning, manpower, military strategy, capacity, and so on. And as the invasion floundered, Wagner was called upon to play an increasingly significant role. They helped plug Russia's manpower deficiencies, um, particularly as the war moved to a kind of uh, more attritional phase in the in the spring and summer. And and to do that, Wagner began recruiting pretty much anyone who would sign up, most notably prisoners. So the founder of Wagner, Prigozhin, would fly in by helicopter to prison colonies all across Russia, and he would deliver a sort of stump speech. And one of them was filmed. It was filmed in somewhere called Moldovia, which is about 800 kilometers from Moscow. And it shows Prigozhin pacing around a prison courtyard surrounded by uniformed prisoners. And he tells them, quote, the war in Ukraine is hard, nothing like those in Chechnya. And he invites them to sign up. He has three rules for those willing to enlist. There's no deserting, no using alcohol or drugs, and no marauding. And he says there will be immediate execution for deserters and those who have, te- who have second thoughts. But in exchange, people who serve for six months would be granted a pardon. And he gives those present five minutes to make up their minds. And there are indications that he gave a version of this speech in many prison colonies across Russia. And many prisoners accepted the offer. And many prisoners accepted the offer. Far from clear that the promises of freedom after six months have any legal validity at all. But still, the the number who enlisted suggests that many chose to take the chance or perhaps in some cases might have been incited or coerced into joining. Um, but, But many joined willingly, including some with long sentences who may well have resolved that dying in Ukraine was still preferable to spending decades in a prison colony. This has come under increased scrutiny in recent weeks because of the apparent execution of someone called Yevgeny Nuzhin, who was recruited from a prison colony by Wagner, sent to Ukraine after minimal training, and pretty much immediately surrendered, apparently, to Ukrainian forces. And he subsequently, while in captivity, gave a series of interviews to Ukrainian media in which he he told a story and also uh, expressed his wish to fight in a unit of Russian volunteers fighting against Russia for Ukraine with the, with the, with the Ukrainian armed forces. And um, in circumstances which are still far from clear, in November, so a couple of weeks ago, we got another video showing Nuzhin, um published online, this time by a Telegram channel associated with Wagner. And the video showed he was um, executed, apparently by Wagner, after seemingly having been exchanged with Ukraine. And this is really kind of indicative of, of, a, of a few things. So the first is kind of that Wagner has now, although it, it is essentially a kind of a, more or less a criminal gang, it is now a de facto unit of the Russian army because it's increasingly essential to the Russian war effort. But at the same time, it still has the morals and the codes of the of the underworld and of course in the russian criminal underworld if you're a traitor if you go over to the other side if you snitch then you are marked for death and the second is that the fact that nuzhin was traded apparently for ukrainian prisoners of war so traded with wagner by ukraine may suggest that wagner conducts its own prisoner of war swaps with Ukraine, which raises a, a lot of questions, um, in particular about the extent of control that the 
Russian uh, Ministry of Defense and, and the command of the Russian Armed Forces has over Wagner and also of the Ukrainians' promises that no Russian prisoners of war will be exchanged against their will if they don't want to go back to Russia. So yeah, this is a really kind of uh, brutal episode that highlights really in, in many ways the kind of breakdown of Russia's constitutional order under Putin and especially since the war broke out because what you have now is essentially an armed criminal gang under more or less independent control as an official unit of the Russian armed forces. You know, I was wondering, I mean, you don't you don't have to go into, you know, gruesome detail or anything, but I was wondering if you could kind of share a bit about about the brutality that that Wagner is known for. So specifically in the execution of Nuzhin, basically he was hit with a sledgehammer twice in the head. So of course, uh, died pretty much instantly from from what we can see. And this is actually a reference. It's basically a meme among Wagner mercenaries because there was an execution of an alleged deserter uh, from the Syrian army in 2017 when Russian-speaking men identified by Russian media as Wagner mercenaries uh, were filmed killing this deserter with a sledgehammer um, before decapitating him. And that episode kind of became Wagner mythology. It became an internet meme. The video was shared uh, among kind of soldiers and, and veterans of Wagner. And this execution is referencing that murder. So this is a group known really for extraordinary brutality, which is not really a surprise if you think about it, because they, they had already, even before the war began, lowering the standards of, of their recruitment and taking really anyone who was willing to sign up and not just the kind of veterans of Russia's elite units as they had perhaps before. And on the battlefield, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily want to describe this, but, you know, the, 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 the brutality of their methods is really chilling. They seem to be one of the most, frankly, violent and brutal units of an obviously incredibly brutal and violent uh, invasion force, full stop. But really, I mean, what's especially notable is they don't really have any compulsion about doing it to their own men about doing it to their own soldiers their way of keeping discipline seems to use violence and a threat of violence to a degree that would be unimaginable for most professional militaries i think and of course these are you know the people nominally on their side so it gives you an idea of the ethos governing wagner and on that on that note on that cheerful note yeah uh, thanks to all of you who sent in your questions you can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash you ask us That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with EU Commissioner Margaret Vestager. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please do. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a very good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 